Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So you got to hear about the premise of this new show we're going to talk about today. It is a radio show on public radio where a talk show host has conversations with artists, with celebrities, and often has big questions about their work and their lives. And you might be thinking, Tom, do you mean Q? No, it's a talk show host named Lauren Caspian, who works for NPR, uh, interviews artists like Tegan and Sarah, Roxane Gay, Finn Wolfhard, all, all been on Q, by the way. The difference is Lauren's actually a stop-motion character played by the actor Zach Woods, who has an executive producer named Barb. Good morning, everyone. Ready to have a great show? Oh, Barb, you know I can't have management hovering over me before interviews. Mm. The last thing I need is some corporate fat cat purring money, money, money in my ear. You make twice my salary. It's not all about money, Barb. He has a researcher, an audio tech, a full staff for his in-the-know interview show. And the show might be full of stop-motion animation characters, but the guests are real, and the conversations are often real. And when you watch this series, if you're a diehard CBC listener or NPR listener, you'll know that it's too real. And if you work in public radio, you'll watch this and know that it's way, way, way too real. Lauren Caspian pulls up pretty much every caricature you can think of about public radio hosts. I'll, I'll just leave it there. And Zach Woods, the creator and star of the show, you might know as Gabe from the American version of The Office. He was also a cast member of the critically acclaimed show Silicon Valley. I loved having this conversation uh, with Zach Woods about making fun of the things that you love, why it's important to make fun of yourself, and about this weird job. Here's our conversation. Zach, how are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. And I really love Q. I'm, oh. I'm a big fan, so I'm excited. Oh, thanks, man. I'm, I'm a big fan right back at you. I am. I've never been more self-conscious about an interview in my entire life, though. Well, can I tell you, there's, there's a thing. I co-created the show with Mike Judge. And Mike Judge is, if for listeners who aren't familiar, is created Beavis and Butthead and, and uh, King of the Hill and made office space idiocracy. Anyway, he is maybe the smartest person I've ever met. I think he built like an x-ray machine out of trash when he was in high school, which sounds like a joke, but I think he maybe actually did that. And he's had like three lives. He was like, a, I don't know. He was like a bass player in like a, a band. And then he was a computer engineer. And then he did all this comedy stuff. Anyway, I, I, I'm not just trying to guess at Mike Judge. The reason I'm saying this is because it, his satire is so... Um, dialed in on what's quietly ridiculous about people that anytime I talk to him, I feel like it's like it, it, it 
I was talking to somebody about it recently. It's almost like a black light, you know, that goes over you where you, you know, when they do the, in the hotels, they show a black light go over to over all the supposedly clean things. And then you see these terrible stains. I feel like that's Mike judge's eyes. He's looking and seeing stains that are otherwise imperceptible to the human eye and then announcing them. So this is a very long winded way <laughs> of saying, I share your self-consciousness in many situations and I, and I empathize. Uh, I guess, I guess. Yeah. Even just then, while you were talking, I was, I was going, would I normally go mm-hmm, 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 in this moment? Or, or, or would I normally do that? Would I not do that? Uh, let, let me, let me, let me make this somehow not about me for a second. Uh, tell us about Lauren Caspian, uh, the, 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 the person who is the public radio host in this show. Okay, so Lauren Caspian is the third most popular NPR host. He's uh, presides over his sort of mini fiefdom in New York public radio, where he is a soft-spoken but tyrannical uh, kind of despot. And he's deeply insecure. He has a girlfriend who's also named Lauren. Um something that never made it into the show is that he, that Lauren, he, he always brags about how his girlfriend Lauren is a dreamer under DACA, but actually she's just a, a, a graduate MFA student from Montreal who's in the country illegally. Um, but he doesn't clarify a- anyway. Uh, so it's about him and his sort of brigade of other public radio people. And each episode they, they do a show where he does interviews with real guests who are in video, not stop motion. They're all stop motion puppets, but the guests are in video. And Lauren, I think it's interesting. Lauren is much closer to me than I care to admit. I think he's someone who is just writhing uh, in their own sense of inadequacy. He has a, a feud with Malcolm Gladwell that Malcolm Gladwell doesn't know about. He has a beef with Terry Gross that Terry Gross doesn't know about. Um, he's just competitive and venal and lonely. And you, and you say that that's sort of a shadow version of you? Yeah, I hope it's a shadow version. I, I mean, yeah, it, it's funny. We were talking before the the interview started, and I was saying I constantly notice myself going, mm, mm, this kind of performative listening without meaning to when people are, are, are talking. I also think something we wanted to play around with a little bit in this is a kind of uh, progressive hypocrisy, which I am horrifically guilty of. One of the things that gave us really the idea for the show is I was walking around a neighborhood in Larchmont, Los Angeles, which is a very Tony upscale neighborhood. And there was like a $4 million house. And on the front lawn, there was a sign that said defund the police. And then right next to it was a sign that said ADT home security, uh, 24 hour armed guards. And I just thought that that was so funny that <laughs> in front of this palace, they were advertising their, their progressive bona fides and the fact that they had, you know, armed mercenaries protecting their property all the time. <laughs> Is that, um, the, the show does that very well. Is, is that tough to satirize the left, to satirize progressives like yourself? I think it's tricky because you never want to tilt into the direction of a kind of right-wing boogeyman. You, you know, you don't want to just traffic in well-trodden archetypes and, and stay in them. Um, so I think something that felt really important to us was that we weren't making propaganda for the right. 
Remember, if you get nervous, plant both feet on the ground and breathe through your nose. Barb, I was part of the people's microphone during Occupy Penn Station. I amplified messages from the Acela Lounge all the way to the Dwayne Reed with the bathroom. I think I can handle a pledge drive. You're our gal. Don't call me gal. You're our person. <laughs> Jesus, fuck, Barb. I am not your property. Wow. We were just trying to figure out how to most enjoy and ridicule what is fundamentally stupid about ourselves. And I think for me, like whenever I meet a person, if they're unwilling to make fun of themselves, if they're unwilling to acknowledge the ways in which they're absurd, it makes me feel very sort of tetchy around them because I, they seem both fragile and a little scary. <laughs> and so I guess as a kind of personal bias, I, I prefer people who can make fun of themselves. And, and I, so we were trying to, to do that. Yeah. It, to me, it felt more like a, like a self-awareness of the left than a, than a, like a scathing satire of the left. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about, I, I was saying to, to Brandon Gardner, who I uh, also co-created the show with, I was like, if there was a right wing, politician, for example, who ridiculed his or herself. I was like, look, I know this part's crazy. This is ridiculous. Like, I, I, I would find it so reassuring, even if I still essentially disagreed with them, it would be nice to know that at least they aren't completely high on their own supply, you know. Um, but there really isn't a lot of that, I don't think. The um, you really have the tone of uh, sort of an NPR classic public public radio show, and I should say for people who are listening to this in Canada, NPR is is public radio in the United States. It's kind of it's like the closest thing I could say is it's kind of like CBC in 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 the U.S. And there's like all kinds of differences, but I won't get into that right now. But you really have both the on air tropes that public radio hosts who are NPR NPR like me trade in the Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, right. And, and and inserting our own like banal life experience into the lives of these the lives of these celebrities into it. But you also have the office dynamics down as well, the the various sort of tropes you see within the office as well. Where where did this come from? Where did these like where did you find out about all this? Well, we talked to some public radio people in the United States. And we found out that one of the things that they do to celebrate, at least at this particular station, is they have something called Yogurt Week, which I thought was both the saddest and funniest holiday I'd ever heard of in my life. Just that that's like the real pop the corks, pop the corks, boys and girls, (laughs) Yogurt Week. Just like, could there be a more... Anyway, so so, uh, that, we learned about that. We also learned about the kind of venomous voicemails they would get if someone misused a preposition or, you know, yeah. too much vocal fry. Yeah. That yeah. because these people donate like whatever, $3 a month, they feel entitled to leave these tongue lashings on the voicemail over these kind of misdemeanors of grammar. And I always thought that was really funny too. You experienced that too at this at CBC? Yeah, because I have, a, like I'm from Newfoundland, so which I get, you know, I get, uh, so I have an accent, right? And um, so I pronounced, my favorite one was I got this word, um, 
I pronounce the word tour like I'm going on tour. I'm going on tour. That's how I would say it, you know? Yeah. Um, so in Canada, there's not donors. Everyone pays the same uh, amount. And that's, you know, that's how it's, it's, it's public radio like that. Those are, those are the differences I was talking about. But of course, you know, and rightfully so, people should feel like it's their their network. Because, I mean, it really, yeah. it really is. Um, but it does lead to a note that I got not that long ago that said, someone said, while it's nice to see a Newfoundlander with a job, can someone let power know that there's two syllables in tour? It's two were. And he wrote it again in bold, two were. So I love, <laughs> I just love, I, you, you got that part, you got that part down. Well, I hope that listener enjoys eventually an, an eternal two were in hell. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, you, you did, you did sort of nail those parts of public radio very, very well. It's just really funny. I mean, also the tempest in a teacup of it all. Like, I, I think, for example, that person to take the time and the energy to condescend so aggressively and so deliberately is fascinating, right? It sort of makes me interested in that person where I'm like, what storm is raging in the center of your chest that necessitates you be so flagrantly obnoxious, like, right? Because that's the other thing. I mean, this is something I think about a lot, which is I think people are usually at their worst when they're terrified, when they feel really frightened. That's when they're they're at their most cruel, shrill, self, uh, unself-aware, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this strange thing where I, I think often people will, not always, but sometimes people will lead in situations with their irony, their cynicism, their gossip, their 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 um, sort of pithy <laughs> dismissiveness, whatever, and be so secretive about all the beautiful stuff about themselves, their love and gratitude and tenderness and vulnerability. And it's such an interesting thing because it's like you you lead the parade with the parts that are most noxious and you keep all the secret, mushy, beautiful stuff under lock and key. And it makes sense because that stuff's more vulnerable. But I guess I do feel like I'm interested in why, why, you know, with individual characters, with myself when I'm like that, with other people. And I think that's something we'd really try to steep ourselves in with this show is remembering that any obnoxious behavior is usually just a byproduct, byproduct of some feeling of inadequacy or some woundedness. And, and, and we try to remember that. So whoever the tour person is, I hope whatever's, whatever <laughs> monkey is on your back gently dismounts one day. I, I hope so too. And you know what? I, I always appreciate a handwritten letter. The um, <laughs> Was it scented? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to say with what. The, um, the, the, um, sp- speaking of un, un, the uncynical nature of the show. So let me, let, me just, let me just get back to the show here for a second. The, 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 the stop motion animation uh, character, Lauren Caspian, the public radio host, the guests that he interviews on Zoom are not, as you mentioned, stop motion. They're on uh, they're on video. They're, they're the real people. Mike Tyson, uh, Tegan and Sarah, Jonathan Van Ness. How does that work? Are, do, do they think they're signing up for a real interview? What do you tell them before they do this? No, there's no trickery. We explain the premise of the show. And then when it's the day of the interview, um, Brandon Gardner, 
would get on a Zoom with them and say, okay, in a second, you're going to do this interview. Um, you can just treat it like a normal public radio interview. If something makes you laugh, you can laugh. If a question strikes you as interesting, please answer as fully as you'd like. The only thing we ask is that you not acknowledge that the character is a puppet. And then we would begin the interview and the interviewer, uh, sorry, the interviewee would be looking at a picture of Lauren because um, obviously the animation happens after the fact. And then I would just be improvising with them. We'd have questions that the writers had submitted and Brandon would be on a Google document with me so he could communicate with me kind of like mission control as I was doing these interviews. And then we'd just talk for like an hour and cut it all down. The 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 reason I bring that up is because these celebrities are not being made fun of, nor are they always making fun of the host or or exposing sort of an 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 inadequacy with the host. There are moments you're going to get so many letters about that <laughs> little stutter. I just pity your mailman; his back is going to break under the weight. While it's nice to see a Newfoundlander with a job. <laughs> If we could get old stuttering power off the air, that would really help. Um, there are these beautiful moments, like with Mike Mike Tyson and and Jonathan Van Ness, where there actually are beautiful interview moments in in beautiful, touching, sweet interview moments in in this show. Our researcher Fabian insisted that you love to shadow box while listening to Ladies of the Canyon. Oh, Fabian, up. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that, Michael, because anytime I give any constructive criticism, she says all feedback is violence. Well, violence is a state of mind. It's perspective on violence. That's not violent to you, but it's violent to her. Hmm. I'm so glad you felt that way. I, I really didn't want the show to be a kind of acidic, you know, just a caustic thing. I Because I generally actually really like people. And I'm so glad that you felt that way about the interviews. I feel that way about the interviews. It's interesting. One of the reasons we wanted to make a stop motion show where we did interviews is that I think if you're in the public eye, you're so media trained, you're so equipped with talking points and evasions and all kinds of answers ready at your fingertips. And we thought if we can get people into the kind of uncanny valley of talking at length to a puppet who is an NPR host, the strangeness of that will hopefully lure them away from their kind of well-trodden talking points into more interesting turf. And I think that ended up happening. You know, it's such a weird way to be interviewed um, that I think people revealed parts of themselves that they might otherwise be disinclined to share, um, not in a kind of gotcha way, but just in a, it's sort of what we were talking about. It's like the parts of yourself that you're used to leading with. We sort of wanted to try to get people away from those once in a while. And Mike Tyson, yeah, Jonathan Van Ness, all of the guests at, at various points shared something that was beautiful um not all of it made it into the show but we we're also going to release a podcast so that we can have some longer uh interview segments what what strikes me is i know mike judge um said about you that you waft NPRness everywhere <laughs> everywhere you go and i and when i was reading about you i know that you you have a great admiration for folks like as as do i for folks like terry gross you know and these it, what strikes me about that is you also got to be an npr interviewer for a little while doing that that part was really exciting. 
I mean, I'm really jealous of your job and 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 people who 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 do research, thoughtful, present interviews. I think I, I think it seems like such a great way to live, and perhaps I'm romanticizing it, but just to be able to be sort of professionally fascinated by the world um, and to then be able to sort of indulge your own fascination and read about the people and learn about the people and then talk to them and and measure your sort of initial impression versus the reality of the person against each other and the whole thing it just seems really interesting i mean i don't know i i forget what your original question was because i went on a long-winded tangent well it was about that you got to be that you got to do oh, that yeah. thing that you've always wanted to do yeah and sometimes i would start to resent the sort of comedic um, the comedic aspects of the show, and I would just want to be able to ask more earnest follow-up questions, um, which I would do sometimes. I would just kind of, you know, throw my responsibilities out the window and just ask what I wanted to ask. Um, and I like that. Have you heard from any of the... Have you heard from anyone like Ira Glass from This American Life? I heard a lot of Ira in, in Lauren Caspian's voice, a lot of Michael, Bar Michael Barbaro from, mm -hmm. from The Daily. I say this because when I started doing, and I'll make this about me again, but when I, when I started doing this show, I was so nervous and, and so scared and I didn't know how to do it that I sort of also did affected an, an accent like those guys. Like, I think if you listen to mm. the first two years of Q, I kind of sound like this and I'm kind of talking like this a little bit more because I really just thought this was how public radio hosts sounded um, in the first couple of years of the show. And I was, so like, have you heard from any of these people who you've, who you've done? I, I don't know if this is true, but I heard this thing where, and I don't know if this is true in Canada, but I, so often I would be on an airplane and when the pilot would come on and and be like, we're going to be cruising at 60,000 feet and we're going to be, it's going to be some rocket skies, but we'll be landing in Atlanta, blah, blah, blah. When they would talk like that, I'd be like, why are they all Southern? And why do they all talk <laughs> in that voice? Like, are they all, is there just like an academy of like good old boys with like, <laughs> like smoke damaged throats? Like what is happening? And then I read somewhere that, Chuck Yeager, the test pilot, talked like that. And so it became this thing that was then replicated where people, where it just became this sort of gold standard of how a pilot talks. And then everyone kept um, doing it, kind of like copies of copies of copies. And so it's possible that Ira Glass is the Chuck Yeager of public radio. By the um, way, Ira Glass is the Chuck Yeager of public radio is the most public radio thing I've ever heard in my entire life. I know. <laughs> he broke the sound barrier. <laughs> did you, did, has, has Ira seen the show? Has, has Ezra Klein seen the show? Michael Barbaro, these people? I don't know. You know, I actually, um, listen, I don't want to, to name drop, but I've, uh, I've met Ira Glass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was a really nice guy. I really liked him. Uh, so I hope that if they've seen it, they don't feel uh, personally uh, assaulted by the, <laughs> by the show. But um, no, I haven't heard from anybody. Uh, you know, we at one point in the show, we talk about Terry Gross and Lauren, who's very threatened by her, says that she's dumb as rocks and cold as an icicle and that he calls her very gross because of the way she eats ranch dressing is like really disgusting. Um, and we were hoping that Terry would hear this and uh, reach out and we could explain that, that was 
because Lauren was uh, threatened by her. But so far, the line is is dead between me and Terry Gross. But I'm hoping it opens up because she is my my uh, on my personal Mount Rushmore. She's uh, me, me too. She's like if I have a if I have a if I have a bad day and I don't know how to do this job, I listen to Terry Gross and I I remember how to do it. Like she is, yeah, she's the. She's the alpha and omega man, so I, I I get it. I hope you. I'm sure you'll end up there. I'm sure she'll love it. I think you're wonderful at your job. Oh, thanks, man. But you know, we all hate ourselves sometimes. Yes. <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to starting my new podcast. We all hate ourselves sometimes. I'm talking to comedian and actor Zach Woods. Uh, coming up, if you're a fan of the U.S. version of The Office, you might know Zach as Gabe, this character who took a big role into the show years into it being on the air. What was it like coming onto that set as an unknown actor? And why did it lead to him jogging for hours on end? More with Zach Woods after this. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Hey, I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Zach Woods. Zach Woods has a new show called In the Know, which is a stop-motion animation parody of public radio personalities. And Zach plays a pretty insufferable public radio host who interviews artists and celebrities. But before Zach uh, made In the Know, he had this whole other life. He was uh, uh, this teenager. I love this story. Growing up, taking improv classes secretly in New York. Zach went on to play Gabe in the hit TV show The Office, starred in the big HBO comedy Silicon Valley. But this part of our conversation starts with talking about that secret life. I was reading about you. Uh, you don't come from a comedy family. Dad's a psychiatrist, is that right? He's a therapist. Yeah. Th- a therapist. He can't prescribe medicine unless he's really feeling wild. <laughs> unless he wants to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. mom's, mom's a nurse practitioner. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Pediatric nurse practitioner. Brother works in healthcare, sister training to be a rabbi. Mm-hmm. She actually is a rabbi. Yeah. No, no comedy uh, in there. No. I mean, I think there's an interest in story. And I, this is me speaking purely as myself right now, not on behalf of my father and my sister. But I do think that, at least from my experience as a patient in therapy, that so much of that is about how you narrate your own life. And examining the stories you tell about yourself and then adjusting them in a way that hopefully uh, allows for a better, a better story. Uh, my sister being a rabbi, again, I know nothing about religion, but I would think that that's also a very story-centric line of work where you're taking these ancient, ancient, ancient stories and repurposing them and looking at them from new angles to try to reveal their relevancy to people's current predicaments. And my family's very uh, verbal and very story-oriented, but not necessarily comedy, although they're all very funny. So so when did, when did prof- comedy as a profession come to you? Is it like you were in high school and you did sketch or something like that? Or 
well, I wanted to be a jazz musician when I was a kid. And then I played trumpet. I used to practice hours and hours every day. And then I got braces and I couldn't really play anymore. So it opened up these massive swaths of time uh, that I hadn't had previously when I had been practicing. And my brother, who went to college in New York City, had gone to a show at a club called the Upright Citizens Brigade, which at that time was just this like very dingy little club in a converted strip club. Um and he said, there are all these people from Saturday Night Live performing improv there. And it sounded really interesting to me. So I took the train up to New York and I started taking classes there. And I, I for some reason, I never told anyone I went to school with that I would do this. But I just started going up to New York more and more and more. And I had this kind of secret New York comedy life when I was in high school. Um, and then I eventually moved there and pursued it uh, through the. You, know. you kept it a secret from your friends that you were going to New York to do comedy at like a very, what is now a very prestigious improv group? Yeah, I mean, I, I back then, yeah, it was not the kind of behemoth that it became. But um, yeah, I didn't tell anyone. And I would be up there like multiple times a week, weekends, sometimes weeknights. I would drive home from the train station. Yeah, I would I would drive to the train station, take the train up, take the train back, and then drive home but because i was on high school hours and waking up at like six in the morning i'd be coming home at like sometimes 1 30 at night and i would drive with the windows down and the ac on in the winter blasting music just like yelling so that i wouldn't fall asleep because i was scared because i was so sleep deprived but i loved it so much that i didn't want to stop doing it but i don't know i think i think when i was in high school I had wonderful pals and everyone was really nice to me, but I think I was kind of a constitutionally lonely person and just inclined to a sort of, I think I had some reclusive tendencies in, in a weird subterranean way. So this is one of those things where I just was like, I don't, yeah, I just, for some reason I wanted to keep it to myself. Isn't that strange? It, I, I understand it, you know, I understand it too. I think there's, A, a there's some things that we want for ourselves and also some things we just don't want to tell other people about us so we have room to fail or or so that it doesn't become our identity, you know, or sometimes sometimes I know people who like are wanting to quit something, they want to quit smoking and they don't want to tell people that they're trying to quit smoking because the feeling of telling people they're quitting smoking can replicate the feeling of actually quitting smoking. Right. So, so maybe telling people, hey, I'm doing improv assigns you this like, oh, I'm going to be an improv guy that 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 would maybe ruin it for you a little bit. Yeah, I also think I think you're really onto something. I think a lot of it is if there's a version of yourself that is really nascent, you know, if, if you want to keep the little kind of fetus version of yourself safe from exposure or embarrassment until it's strong enough to stand on its own legs or something. I don't know. I can psychoanalyze myself to the cows come home. But I, but uh, yeah, but I, that's how I got into doing comedy stuff. And then one thing led to another. Well, one thing led to another. And I wanted to ask about The the Office, which is where mm-hmm. I saw you for the yeah. first time. You, you played Gabe on, on The Office. Did Aaron ever tell you that she loves you? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> she wouldn't even let me say it. It was adorable. She'd plug her ears and scream her heart out. <laughs> Can you stop talking? Because every word out of your mouth is like the squawk of an ugly pelican. I got a tattoo for you. I didn't ask you to get that Nike swoosh. Nobody did. You did that for you. Just do it. You were the it that I was just doing. For, for people who aren't familiar with the show, the show was already a really big hit. Um, the show had been doing re- really well. and It had sort of like overcome this 
feeling that it wouldn't be as big as the British office. And then it kind of became its own thing and found its own own tone, um, started winning awards. The people on the show became, you know, kind of big stars. And you do a really interesting thing in that you kind of come in while it's all happening. What do you remember about that? What do you remember about walking on, on set? Just abject terror. Because I had watched the show and I loved the show. And I'd never been on television before. Um, so I didn't know how any of it worked. I didn't know how the, you know, I didn't know the rhythm of a production, the technical demands of it. I didn't know about press. I didn't know about anything. I'd met with this casting director, Allison Jones, who was kind of my fairy godmother in a way. She, we met at this old soundstage where I think they used to shoot I Love Lucy. It was the first time I'd ever been in Los Angeles. And she had seen this movie I did called In the Loop. It was the only thing I'd ever really acted in. And she sat me down in her office and she talked to me for a while. And then she said, I'm going to help you. And typically when people say that in Hollywood, first of all, typically people don't say that in Hollywood. But if they say it, often it's just kind of like uh, show business sugar talk where, you know, it's it sounds great, but it doesn't hold up. And... Then she got me a job on The Office. I didn't audition. I just met with the producers and then they gave me a part. So if ever there was a perfect kind of crockpot for imposter syndrome, it's that. <laughs> you know, you're just being given the keys to the kingdom and you've never auditioned. You haven't done it before. So I was just more freaked out than I think I've ever been about work. And I would just walk around muttering my lines to myself constantly, like like some sort of weird liturgy of, of terror. And um, I would run. I hate, hate, hate exercise. Like I hate to move my body. Um, and yet I was running miles every day to just try to burn off some of the, <laughs> the anxiety. But luckily when I got there, everyone was so kind um, they were such kind people in a way that is not, certainly not an inevitability. You know, some interloper comes into your show that's been going great and there's already a lot of comedic balance to feed. And then this noob kid rolls in with his, you know, palpable fear. It would be very easy to find that person to be a nuisance or to, to at least ignore that person. But instead, people really, really extended themselves in ways that I found so touching. And I think had they not, I would not be an actor right now. Are there things you took from that show that you brought to your future work, whether it's a dynamic or? Um... That's an interesting question. I think one thing I remembered was people doing that for me. So then when I was on Silicon Valley, where I had more of a feeling of ownership, this other show that I did, whenever somebody new would come on the show, I would really go out of my way to try to um, make time for them and talk to them and make them feel at home because I remember what a difference that made to me. Um, and then I think another thing is I remember being, because at that point I wasn't really a trained actor. So I, I felt mostly comfortable with improv. So I always just wanted to improvise in scenes because that's where I felt safe. But then I also wasn't sure if that was rude or inappropriate. And I remember asking Steve Carell about it. And he was like, never rob the show of a good idea. Like never let your, you know, sense of propriety stand between the sh show and a good idea. 
Uh, that's, that's beautiful. I think we have time for one more. All right, one, one, one more question. Hit it, Sam. I think when you look at the history of stop-motion animation, I think it's hard not to think about my own experience growing up in Newfoundland and Labrador on a small island, and I was watching British stop-motion animation like Wallace and Gromit and realizing there would be an opportunity to talk about something deeper about animated characters because they're not living, breathing humans. It allows for deeper introspection, both of the character and the realization that I feel maybe more for Clay than I do for my fellow man. I think that's important to negotiate. What do you think of that? I mean, I never had any experience with stop motion before, but I was completely seduced by it too. And I share your preference for clay over flesh, which is maybe the most disturbing sentence said between two men at the end of an interview ever. We were trying to figure out what's the most public radio question we could give you towards the end of an interview. I think saying I prefer clay over flesh (laughs) is truly... The, the kind of high-minded <laughs> creepiness, that's my favorite, is the, it's the very sort of hyper-educated, still a creepness is my favorite. <laughs> uh, Zach, such a joy to talk to you, man. Thank you so much. You too. I loved it. Thank you for having me. I was so excited when, when, when I found out I was doing this show. That's my conversation with the comedian and actor Zach Woods. His new series is called In the Know. It's out now uh, in the U.S. on Peacock and will be available in Canada mid-March on Adult Swim. Uh, The other episode we have up today, I was thinking about, um, do you remember that show Kids Say the Darndest Things? It was like Art Linklater did it, I think, in the 60s and 70s. Bill Cosby did it in the, yeah, in in the 1990s or something like that. Anyway, the questions, they would have these kids on and they would ask them questions like, you know, um, what does your mom like to do for fun? And, you know, they'd say something cute, you know, or like, how tall, do you, how old do you think your dad is? And they'd be like, oh, 108. Aha, so funny. <laughs> what if Art Linklater said to them, like, how do you feel about the future of the climate? That's sort of what Sonny Drake's new show is all about. It's called Childish. Uh, Sonny Drake, Australian-Canadian theater uh, artist. Interviewed a bunch of kids about how, how they feel about the world, um, about mental health, about climate, um, and he made adult actors voice their answers. It's really interesting. Ultimately, a conversation about hope. Go check that out wherever you got this podcast. See you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.